All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you. If not, you need to go find one, grab one, and open to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. Last week, we wrapped up our study of Colossians that we actually started at the end of August last year. As we move on from that study, we don't want to move away from it. We want to carry those lessons with us. We want to be careful not to forget all that the Lord taught us over the last nine months. Today, we're going to kick off a new study on the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. You may remember that at the beginning of 2019, in fact, the first Sunday of 2019, we spent several weeks looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. This study that we're entering into today will essentially be the sequel to that study as Elijah hands the baton off to Elisha. And it's actually the beginning of that exchange that we're going to look at in, in our text this morning. This study is going to allow us to spend some time in the Old Testament to see the power and faithfulness of God through the life and ministry of this prophet. Having looked at the two of these prophets together, we will see the various facets of ministry amongst God's people. To say it a different way, Elijah and Elisha are quite different, and the ways God used them were quite different, but they both faithfully served the Lord and His people. The bottom line in this is that people are different and seasons are different and God uses all kinds of both for the sake of his name and for his kingdom. Like I said today, we're going to look at the beginning of the handoff between Elijah and Elisha as we see the call of Elisha to service unto the Lord. Now before we dive into 1 Kings 19, 15 through 21, I want to remind you a little bit of the context of this passage. You may remember that in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. It's a scene that, that's hard to forget. If you've read it once, you can, you can imagine it in your mind as Elijah the prophet challenges the prophets of Baal to see whose God is truly God and basically says, you guys take a bull, you prepare it, I'll take a bull, I'll prepare it, and we'll both call to our gods, and whichever God answers by fire, that one will be God. And he tells the prophets of Baal that they get to go first, and they do. They get their bull ready, they get their altar ready, and they begin to call out to Baal, Oh, Baal, answer us. Nothing. Silence. Silence. And they go on all morning doing this. They begin to leap about and shout. They cut themselves. They rave from uh, the morning till midday, and nothing happens. There is absolute silence. And finally, Elijah says, it's my turn, right? You know this story. And he says, he gets everything ready. He rebuilds the altar. He puts the animal on the altar and he calls for water. He says, bring, bring me some pitchers of water. And he pours it on the, on the altar to the point that everything is absolutely soaked. And even the channel that he dug around the altar is soaked. And then he simply cries out to God uh, and God answers with fire from heaven that comes down and consumes the animal and the wood and the rocks even that, that made up the altar and licks up all the water around there. And the people cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That, that scene in 1 Kings 18 is like the pinnacle of ministry uh, for anyone that we can imagine. God has proven himself through the ministry of this prophet. But then we turn to chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, and Elijah gets word that the evil queen Jezebel is threatening to kill him. And he runs for his life. He runs for his life as far away as he can go. In fact, in that dark hour, he cries out to God, asking God essentially to kill him. In his darkest hour of discouragement and disappointment, Elijah asked the Lord to kill him. But that was not the Lord's plan. 
The Lord was not done with Elijah yet. And the text that we're going to look at today picks right up at the end of that moving scene when God meets with Elijah on Mount Horeb and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah, what are you doing here? And uh, that's, a, that's a moving scene. But what I, what I want you to get from this is that what we're going to see today is in the dark valley of discouragement and disappointment. It's in the dark night of the soul that God tells Elijah to go find Elisha and anoint him as prophet in his place. It's not a mountaintop of revival in which the Lord speaks to him this way. It is in the dark valley of death and discouragement that the Lord speaks to him this way. So before we read uh, the text for today, as kind of a side note, one of the things that I hope happens through this sermon series is that your interest is piqued about reading and studying the Old Testament. Uh, oftentimes, people seem to have an attitude that the Bible in general, the Old Testament specifically, is boring and dry. And when I hear people say things like that, there is one thing I know for sure. They haven't read it. Um, be, because if you read the Bible, you will see there's some crazy stuff that happens. There's some wild stories, and you're going to see a double dose of that, a double portion of that in the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha. You may remember some of the wild stuff that happened in the life and ministry of Elijah. Twice as many crazy things happen in the life and ministry of Elisha. He gets a double portion of that spirit, and we're going to see all of that, and hopefully it, it will pique your interest a bit in studying, reading and studying the Old Testament. So here's our text for today. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 15. We'll read through verse 21 today. This is what God's Word says. It says, The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. The one who escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. Verse 18 says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this day with a posture of expectation. We are looking forward to all of the things that you will teach us through this study of Elisha's life and ministry. We're looking forward to the ways you will encourage us and comfort us. And we also anticipate and even welcome the times when you rebuke us, convict us, and correct us, because we know that we often need that. More than anything, though, we look forward to seeing you more clearly, for that is what we desire most, and it is what we need the most. So we ask you to show us yourself and to help us respond to that revelation with faith and repentance, and obedience, and submission, and worship. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
All right, so we're going to dive in to the study of Elisha, but before we do that, we're going, to, we're going to see some things about Elijah's life. We're going to have a little bit of a background here in verses 15 and 16 and even 17. Notice in verse 15, it says, The Lord said to him, the him there is Elijah. After his running, after the Lord's provision for him, after this confrontation on Mount Horeb, when God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? The Lord basically tells him, to go back into the arena of Ahab and Jezebel. He says, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall do these things. He's basically telling him to go back into that place of confrontation. But what you're going to see is that the mission now really doesn't have so much to do with Elijah and his work. It doesn't so much have to do with him doing anything, but rather it has to do with the next set of players in the game. In some sense, the ESV study Bible is right when it says Elijah has all but had his day. As his next mission is about appointing or better yet anointing those who would be in leadership positions next. So very much what the Lord says to him in this moment is it's time to start thinking about the future. It's, ti it's time to start looking ahead. There are some new people who are going to come onto the scene. Elijah's ministry is going to go on for some time. But the focus will be on the transition to the next generation of leaders. Not just his successor as prophet, but even of kings. And not just the kings of God's people, but even kings of pagan nations. Now, without getting into too much detail, the inclusion of the note about the king of Aram is super interesting. Because it indicates that the Lord is God, not just over Israel. Not just over those who would trace their lineage back to Abraham and not just over those who gladly put their trust in him. It communicates that the Lord is God even over those who oppose him. In other words, there is not a ruler out there whose heart is not in the hands of the Lord. We see this clearly in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, when it says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He turns it wherever he wishes. R. Kent Hughes says, Notice the international dimension signaled in verse 15. The Lord who remains committed to his purpose for Israel is the Lord of all the earth, and he will send his prophets beyond Israel to accomplish his purpose. The point that I want you to get here is this. The Lord is God. The Lord, he is God over all the nations even those who oppose him, and he will use all of them to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And, and I want to emphasize that for you today because this should bring some measure of comfort to us here and now in the midst of this trying season. To know that there's not a president, there's not a governor, there's not a king, there's not a mayor, there's not a leader whose heart is not ultimately in the hands of the Lord who is, who is directing his paths ultimately for his glory. This is a comforting thought. No matter who sits in the seat of power on this earth, it is the Lord who rules from heaven, no matter what. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. It's helpful to get a little bit of context here. We see earlier in chapter 19 that in his darkest moments, one of the things Elijah kept on repeating to the Lord is the idea that he is the only faithful person left in the whole world. Like he says, I'm the only person who still believes, who still trusts, who still worships, but it's simply not true. The Lord tells him here that there are 7,000 others who still believe, who still trust, 
who still worship. In other words, even though Elijah felt alone, he was not alone. There were many, many others walking the same road that he was on. And this principle applies to us nearly all the time as well. There are seasons in our lives when we feel like we are all alone, when we feel like no one else knows the trouble we face, when we feel like no one else has ever experienced this kind of pain before. It's not true. It's not true. Even in a church like ours, there are likely others who have walked or are walking and many who will walk the same road that you are on. Oh, that the Lord would help us to see the others who are walking that same road and allow us to walk together. Like one of God's great designs for the local church is that we would have people who have been through the pain that we are currently going through and we can walk together through that pain. We can comfort one another with the same comfort with which we ourselves were comforted, like Paul says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, that God will give us grace to see one another and be able to walk together. Now, from a broader perspective, verse 18 communicates an idea that scholars call remnant theology. And this idea of remnant theology is found all throughout the Bible. There are many seasons, especially in the Old Testament, where it seems like everyone has abandoned the Lord. Everyone has abandoned the Lord and gone off to serve other gods. But it's never the case. It's never the case that everyone has done that. There are always a few who remain faithful. In fact, think back to the scene at Kadesh Barnea. When, when God has delivered his people from Egypt, he has brought them into the wilderness and he has brought them to the promised land. Remember, they send 12 spies, 12 spies over into the promised land to check it out and see what it's like. And when they come back, the 10 spies who say, it is fantastic, but there are giants who live there and there is no way we could ever defeat them. Well, those 10 spies convinced the entire people not to go in and an entire generation, we often say this, an entire generation perished in the wilderness because of that unfaithfulness, right? An entire generation, wrong. It wasn't the entire generation. There were two guys in the midst of the unfaithfulness of that entire generation that were faithful, a remnant, two guys named Joshua and Caleb who did have faith and who were allowed to go into the promised land because of their faithfulness. That's kind of an extreme example of this remnant theology. Like an entire generation, except for two dudes, forsake, forsook the Lord and yet God spared those two guys. And one of the things that is really interesting to me in this is it is the Lord who does that. Like the credit uh, for Joshua and Caleb's faithfulness in the midst of all the unfaithfulness around them doesn't go to those guys. It goes to the Lord who is keeping his promises to his people that he will not leave them or forsake them. Here's the promise. The Lord will not abandon his people. He will always keep a remnant for himself. Always. In fact, Paul uses the story that we're looking at here in 1 Kings chapter 19 in Romans chapter 11, to explain this like in a New Testament sense. Look at Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'll, I'll press pause there, and let's just say, Paul's saying it right there. He's like, God has always, even in the midst of large-scale unfaithfulness, he's always keeping a few of his people for himself. And Paul says, I'm one of those. I'm one of those. My countrymen generally do not believe. 
but I do. And God has kept a remnant for himself. Verse 2 says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, who pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I, I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Verse 5 says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. This idea of remnant theology is rich, and we, we probably don't have time to, to go through all of it, but it is something that is, that, that is all throughout the Scriptures. God is keeping a people for himself, and we praise the Lord for that. Now, most of what we looked at here up through verse 18 is background. But in verse 19, we get into the story of Elisha. Look at verse 19. It says, so he departed from there, that's Elijah departed from there, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. When we met Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, we knew very little about him. He seems to just appear out of the blue quite abruptly and go straight into action. His ministry starts immediately in this showdown with evil King Ahab when he basically says, it's not going to rain again until I say it's going to rain again. Like he just, he just bursts onto the scene in like full roar. But Elisha's pattern is quite different from that. We get to know him a little bit before he really does much of anything. We even get to know a little bit about his home life, which is really interesting. In this verse, we learn about his family a bit. It says he is the son of Shaphat. We also know where he is from. Earlier in verse 16, we learn that he is from Abel-Meholah. Maybe the most significant thing, though, that we glean from this fairly uh, brief description of his life is that he evidently was from a wealthy farming family. Like, I'll draw your attention to the fact that he is plowing with 12 pairs of oxen. 12 pairs of oxen. That's a big deal. That's like, that's like a, a barn full of John Deere tractors, right? It's like not, not one John Deere tractor and not a little one, but big ones and a bunch of them. Uh, he, is, he is from a family that's fairly wealthy and is farming. And the fact that he is out there plowing with this last pair of oxen signifies not only that he's involved in the operation, like the work on the farm, but he was overseeing it as he's the last man in the line. Like he's making sure everybody else in front of him is doing what they should do. So here's the point. The picture here of Elisha is a guy who has it made. In many ways, he's got it made and he's not looking to lead. He is not a rebel. He is not a prodigal. He's not some rogue guy out there on his own running from his former life. No, he's a guy who seems to have it quite comfortable when Elijah finds him. When Elijah finds him, he's doing his thing and he seems to be really happy. And as such, he is much like many of the disciples that Jesus called to follow him. Like a lot of those guys weren't out looking for someone to follow. Think about uh, the fishermen mending their nets, taking care of their things. And Jesus walks up and says, follow me. And what do they do? They drop it and they follow him. Think about Matthew, the tax collector. What's he doing? He's collecting taxes. He's not looking to leave his life. And yet Jesus shows up and calls him and he goes. So Elisha is a lot like those guys in that he's got it made where he is. He's not looking to leave. And yet there is this call and he goes. He's a lot like the disciples in that way. And he's very much like many of us today. 
the fact that he is in a very comfortable place when the call of God comes upon him is super relatable. Super relatable. And I love the way Laura talked about this, that maybe God is going to do same kind of thing. Same kind of thing that he did with Elisha. Same kind of thing that he did with Peter and James and John and Matthew and those guys. Maybe he's going to do the same thing with some of you today as we continue to look at this story. Look at the next verse. Um, the end of verse 19 says, And Elijah passed over him and threw his mantle on him. Uh, so uh, <laughs> let's define mantle first uh, because maybe you're like, oh, that, didn't, that must not have felt good. He threw this giant a piece of wood that hangs over the fireplace on him. No, some of your translations refer to it as a cloak, um, which probably makes more sense to us. Uh, it is this kind of outer garment that was necessary for existence because of the climate in those days. Uh, it was also evidently a quite re recognizable article. Like you could spot someone coming from, from far off because you would recognize their outer cloak, their mantle. Think Joseph uh, and his coat of many colors, like this really recognizable thing um, that would have been with him all the time. Um, this mantle or cloak is super interesting to me and is really going to become like a character of its own in the story. Um, it's 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 man, in some ways feels like it has a life of its own, like Dr. Strange's uh, cape uh, in those movies. Um, this is the same mantle, this is the same cloak that we saw Elijah covering his face with when he met with God on Mount Horeb. Uh, you can read about this in chapter 19, verse 13, that when he finally does come out of his hiding place and the Lord speaks to him, he covers up his face with this mantle or this robe. And you're going to see it come back up multiple times. In fact, in the, in the text next week, it's going to be kind of a major player as Elijah is going strike to the, strike the river with it and they'll cross on dry ground. And, and then I don't want to give all the punchline away. I want you to come back next week. But uh, Elisha is then going to get it and do the same thing on his way back across the river. It's incredible stuff. So, like I said, it, it almost becomes a character of its own. Um, and some people, when we get to this part of verse 19, really want to dog on Elijah, uh, observing that he doesn't really do what the Lord commanded him to do. Like the Lord said, go and anoint Elisha as prophet in your place. And he doesn't really anoint him. And so some people just like, they're down on Elijah here saying that he only half-heartedly follows the Lord, Lord's commands. And I don't want to go down that road because whatever he does in this moment when he throws this cloak onto Elisha, it is abundantly clear to Elisha what it means. Like, whether it's subtle, whether it's direct obedience unto the Lord to annoy him, Elisha gets the message. He absolutely understands what this means, and it has the desired effect of calling Elisha away from what he's doing and into service to the Lord, which is exactly what the anointing was supposed to do. So, so to just, just act like Elijah is a bad guy because he doesn't anoint Elisha here, I don't, I don't know that that's fair because what he does produces the very same thing, and we'll see it play out in the next verse. Look at verse 20. It says, And he, that's Elisha at this point, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? I love this. Love this. Elisha understands what it means. 
Although it was subtle and seems strange to us, Elisha understands what it means when Elijah puts his cloak on him and he leaves his oxen and he runs after Elijah. This sounds a lot like those original disciples, right? They left their nets, they left their boats, they followed Jesus. They left the tax collecting booth and they went to follow Jesus. And Elisha is ready to drop it all and follow after Elijah. I love this, but wait. He runs after him only to ask if he can go back and kiss his parents. And Elijah essentially directs him to do just that. Now, when you read that part of the text, I hope there was something in you that was like, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, that that doesn't sound like Jesus calling of the disciples. That sounds like something different. It should cause us to balk a bit because of what we read in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 will be on the screen. Luke chapter 9 verse 57 says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord... Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So so when we read this between Elijah and Elisha, we think, Oh, man, what's going on here? Well, I think there are two things going on here. Two things going on in 1 Kings 19. The first is that this scene goes more to the point that Elisha was leaving a very happy, very comfortable, very fulfilling life. He wasn't running away from a bad situation. He wasn't even looking to leave. And when he does leave, he does so in a way that is loving and respectful to his family. He goes back and he says goodbye, kisses his mom and dad and says goodbye as he goes to follow what the Lord has for him. But maybe the second thing we notice here is even more important. This goes to show that the call to follow and serve the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than the call to follow and serve Elijah the prophet. One scholar notes that this text makes it, quote, clear that the importance, priority, and urgency of following Jesus is even greater than Elijah's call to Elisha. In the New Testament, it says something greater than Elijah has come. And so Jesus can say, come follow me. And when you say, but let me me go and kiss my mom and dad, he says, no, I say, come follow me now. Um, And we want to do that. We want to be quick to go. I wonder if there are some of you who have been hearing the call of the Lord to some other kind or some other place of service, but you've been reasoning that away by saying, but my life here is everything I want it to be. All my dreams have come true here. Surely the Lord wouldn't be calling me out of this good scenario into a scenario that is risky, unknown, and scary. Some some of you are really wrestling with this. Like you're hearing the Lord say, I've got something else for you. And it's a scary place and it's a dangerous place. But come, come, follow me. And you were like reasoning it away by saying, but it's so good here, Lord. You You wouldn't surely wouldn't call me out of this good thing into something that might be harder. Let me just say, that's exactly what he does all the time. The Lord is constantly doing that with people we know around us, with people in the scriptures. God is not primarily concerned about your comfort. He's not primarily concerned that you have 12 
pairs of oxen. Maybe he's calling you to leave all of that and go to a place that doesn't have the gospel. That's what he's doing with Elisha. And Elisha's ready to do it. He's ready to go. Look what happens in verse 21. It says, So he, that's Elisha, returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Again, this text reinforces both the principles of Elisha's love and respect for his family and his willingness to leave it all to be obedient to the Lord. He loves and respects his family and he is willing to leave it all to be obedient to the Lord. Notice that he worships the Lord here. It's a language of sacrifice. As subtle as Elijah's action seems to be, it is evidently crystal clear to Elisha that the Lord is doing something here. And so he sacrifices unto the Lord these oxen. I wonder sometimes if the Lord's clear call to us is sometimes more subtle than we imagine and we miss it because of that. I wonder sometimes if the Lord speaks to us and calls us subtly rather than like big writing on the sky and we miss it because of that. Elisha, Elisha recognizes that the Lord is doing something here and so he worships him. Notice also that he feeds his people. He feeds the servants in his household. Two oxen would feed a whole lot of people, especially if you need to cook it all at one time because you don't have a freezer. This is a feast. If he's going to sacrifice these two oxen and cook them up, he's going to feed a whole lot of people. This is a massive feast, and it is an act of kindness, an act of goodwill, an act of appreciation. He is leaving his family, but he isn't hateful. He isn't ugly about it. He isn't uncaring to these people that he's lived with up to this point. He honors them even as he's leaving. I think there are lessons for us to learn in that as well. If, if you're one of those people that God is calling to, to go, to drop it all here and go to some place, you could do that in a way that honors your family. That, that can't be your highest priority, but you could do that. You could honor your family even, even as you leave to take the gospel to the nations. Notice also thirdly, he leaves it all here. In case the two points above might lead you astray, Elisha's commitment to Elijah and to the Lord ultimately is full. He doesn't even leave the oxen there under someone else's care so that he could return in case this whole prophet thing doesn't pan out. He kills them. He kills the oxen and he burns them using the implements, the harnesses, and the riggings uh, as wood for the fire. Like, have you ever heard the phrase, burn the ships? This is exactly what Elisha does here. Popular Christian musicians for king and country have a song by that title. It's, pre it's pretty on point for this text uh, about burn the ships. I'm not looking back. That phrase comes from a story of Cortez, the great Spanish explorer, who allegedly, uh, according to myth and lore, burned his entire fleet upon reaching the destination of his mission. When he landed at present-day Veracruz, Mexico, he destroyed all of his ships so that when the going got tough, his men would have no way to retreat. It was do or die trying. That's what one scholar said. It was do or die trying. There was no going back, only pressing on. <laughs> That's great, right? Now, that, all of that is a little bit sketchy historically. Um, most, most real historians say that, that Cortez didn't actually burn the ships. He actually dismantled them. Uh, and used the wood from the ships to build housing for his troops and things like that on shore. The bottom line is the same, and the point remains. 
Retreat is easy when you leave yourself the option. Retreat is easy when you leave yourself the option. And this is exactly the point that Jesus is making in Luke chapter 9. When he says, no one, after putting his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This is why we sang a minute ago, no turning back. No turning back. We want to have that kind of commitment unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have left it all to follow him. And we burn the ships. Because there's no turning back. There's no option for retreat. We only press on in service to the Lord. Look what it says at the end of this verse. It says, Then he, that's Elisha, arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Elisha's calling is super interesting. It's a lot like David's calling. It's a lot like Joshua's calling in that it is abundantly clear from the beginning that this guy's going to be the next great prophet. He's going to be the successor to Elijah. But it's not his time just yet. He's going to serve for a season as the second chair before he takes the first chair. Some scholars believe that Elisha serves Elijah as his assistant for up to 10 years before the baton is fully handed to him. That, that's the scene we'll look at next week. And Elisha seems to embrace that role, as did David, as did Joshua. He served faithfully in the second chair as long as it was necessary. And it was this season in the second chair that further equipped him and made him ready for the day when he would move on to the first chair. And we must be willing to serve that way in the kingdom of God. Uh, you may have noticed earlier in the service we had Sam up here to read scripture. Sam is one of three young men at First Baptist this summer serving as summer ministry apprentices. It is quite obvious that they are not in the first chair around here, right? They are not running the show. They're not making huge decisions, but they are gladly embracing their position in the second chair so that they can be equipped for the day when they do serve in the first chair. They will ruin their summer if they spend it all in angst that they're not in the first chair. The way to maximize this summer of experience and training is for them to embrace the second chair role as an opportunity to be equipped to serve. Now, I remember being in that chair. I remember being in that second chair and thinking, I could do it better. I could do it better than these guys. I could do, just let me in the first chair and I'll show you. Um, that's pride. Yes, push that down and, and embrace it because... This is where you are trained to serve faithfully in the future. So Elijah, I mean, Elisha seems to embrace that second chair and he ministers to Elijah until the time comes for him to serve uh, in, the, in the spotlight. And he's going to do it. And we'll see that handoff next weekend. So here are three applications today from this text. Number one, the Lord still calls people today. The Lord is still calling people out today. First, he is calling people to himself for salvation. This is basic gospel truth, right? That we are sinful and we deserve punishment from a holy God because of our sinfulness. But in his rich mercy and in his grace, God has made a way for sinful man to be reconciled to him through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are reconciled to God as a gift of grace that we receive by faith by putting our trust and our dependence upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in trusting him, we are 
reconciled to God and we are, we are made his friends. The enmity is put to death and we are made his friends more than his friends. We're adopted into his family. God is calling people to salvation. The picture, the picture of it, oftentimes when we think about it, is the scene at Lazarus's tomb. Lazarus is dead. And the Bible says that apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Lazarus is dead. There is no life in him. And what does Jesus do? He walks up to that tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. He calls him by name and calls him out of the grave into life. He gives life to him by speaking to him this way. And maybe that's happening with you today. Maybe you, maybe you are hearing the Lord call your name. You were dead and now you're coming to life and he is calling you out of the grave to walk with him in this newness of life. The Lord does that. He does that and I pray that he will do it today. And he also calls people not just to salvation, but he calls people to service in his kingdom. He calls people particularly to service in his kingdom. Sometimes it's surprising and unexpected. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sometimes you like like Moses, and you're like, well, wait a minute, I'm not a, I'm not a very good speaker. The Lord says, go, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And you're like, you got the wrong guy. I've, I've got a stutter. Sometimes it's unexpected. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sometimes this call of the Lord to faithful service to him is subtle. It's not always a, a, a vision or a dream or a writing in the sky. Sometimes it is a little encouragement from somebody. Sometimes it's an opportunity that comes out of the blue that, that you weren't expecting. Um, sometimes that call is very subtle. And sometimes the call to service in the kingdom is a call to the second, second chair. It's not always a call to lead. Sometimes it's a call to support, to encourage, and to serve. Nonetheless, it's important service to the kingdom. Like when I'm, when I'm thinking about that part, I'm thinking about the scene um, uh, where uh, who, who is Moses, right? Where he is like, as long as he keeps his arms up, the people win. But he gets tired and he can't keep his arms up anymore. And there are a couple of dudes come along. One of them's name was Her, and, and, and help hold his, Aaron and Her help hold his arms up. Like it seemed like Moses was the man. But he needed those guys to help him, and that is important work. And so just, just because the call may be to a second chair doesn't mean it's insignificant. So number one, the Lord still calls people today. Number two, the only response to that call that is proper is to follow. Like if he is calling you out of the grave, the only thing that makes sense is to come out of the grave. Like uh, Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. If Lazarus were to say, eh, pass, I'm, I kind of like it here. It's nice and cool. I've got this thing on my face. That's crazy, right? The only proper response to that call to salvation is to, is to go, is to run to Jesus and trust in Jesus. And I'm telling you, the only proper response to his call to service, even if it's a call to pain and suffering and persecution and tribulation, the only proper response to that is to follow him. You are not you are not better off where you are if he is calling you somewhere else. Like the, the enemy will try to trick you. He will try to say, but you're so comfortable here. You've got such a good life here. God has given you this life. Why would, he, why would he call you to forsake it to go somewhere else? That's the enemy. If God is calling you somewhere else, you are not better off here. You're only better off following him. And, and this is relatable to us, right? Because we've got some friends who have done this. We think of the O's and we think of the T's. Like none of that makes sense, right? 
from, from an American dream perspective, that does not make sense. To leave the kind of life that they had here, to go to the places where they are, it just doesn't make sense. But they couldn't do anything else because the Lord was clearly calling them. We think about this even with Caleb and his family and Bailey and his family. Like this is, this is what it looks like. And when I start thinking about that, when I start thinking about the O's and the T's and the Thompsons and the drones, I got to think, who's next? Like who's the next one that the Lord will call to say, I'm dropping this to go do what he's called me to do. You are not better off where you are if he is calling you to be somewhere else. You are not better off doing what you're doing if he's calling you to do something else. So I'm, I'm inviting you today to submit yourself to him, to put yourself at his feet and say, Lord, wherever you send, I'll go. We sang that a minute ago. You realize how dangerous it is to say, sing that song? To say, send me, send me, send me. He will. Will you go? Do you mean it? Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you still call people today. You call them out of the grave and into life, and you call them into service for your kingdom. And I pray that you will help us to respond in the only way that's proper, to follow where you lead, to run to Jesus for life, and to go where you send. Father, teach us in this moment that we are not better off where we are if you are calling us somewhere else. Have your way with our lives. Send us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Christ is my reward and all of my devotion. Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Through every trial, my soul will sing no turning back. I've been set free. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I Christ, my all in all, the joy of my salvation. And this hope will never fail. Heaven is my home. Through every storm, my soul will sing. Jesus is here, to God be the glory, Christ is enough for me, Christ is enough for me, everything I need is in you, everything I need. 
turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Christ is enough for me, Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Everything I need, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back the cross before me the world behind me no turning back no turning back the cross before me the world behind me no turning back no turning back no turning back no turning back. 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 No turning